There we go. Got the green light. We're good. All right. So, um, now the last time I was with you, uh, we preached on our great salvation out of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And uh, so this week what I want to do is take a peek at what lies behind that salvation. And so we're going to be doing that primarily by looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. But I want to read the section from 3 to 14 to just set the general context. So if you would uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, if you give your attention now to the reading of the Word. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, his protege in the faith, says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your, in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of the word. Our Father in heaven, we come now, and Lord, our prayer is that as your word is read publicly, you would bless the reading of the word to the souls of the hearers, and likewise now, as your word is to be proclaimed, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word uh, to the hearts of the hearers. Uh, and Lord, we ask that your spirit would superintend over this time. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be at work in our hearts through your word doing that transforming work in us, changing us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would grant understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would be working redemptively now in our midst through the preaching of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, there is a central doctrine of the Christian faith that has fallen on hard times in the modern evangelical church. Uh, it's little preached on, it's hardly understood, it doesn't get a lot of attention, and yet when we look at our Bibles, what we see is, is that this doctrine is the central identity of the Christian and the most common way the Bible describes us. 
It is at the heart of Paul's theology, and the Apostle Paul, in all of his writing, presents it as synonymous with salvation. In fact, Paul uses it over 60 times to describe the Christian. Now, with this resume, do you think it's an important doctrine for us to understand? And we see it represented in Scripture in a little two-word phrase, in Christ. It's the doctrine of union with Christ. And in our text today, Paul does clearly and directly tie the saving purposes of God to union with Christ. Now, we gotta, we got to, again, understand the general context as we come to these two verses. When we come to the, to, to the book of 2 Timothy, this is the last of the Pauline epistles. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, Paul, who is already in prison, is going to say, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. Martyrdom is the next thing on Paul's schedule. And what he's doing is he's writing to Timothy, his protege and his son in the faith, whom he is passing the baton of ministry to, and he is urging and exhorting him to preserve and preach and pass on the pure gospel that he has entrusted to him. And in the midst of this exhortation, in verses 9 and 10, Paul summarizes the gospel in two verses, and he ties the whole of our salvation, not just our justification, he ties the whole of our salvation to union with Christ. And he says our salvation was given to us in Christ, and it was revealed to us in the gospel. And so we're going to look at these two verses under those two main headings. So when we come to verse 9, he says that, that, that our, our salvation was given to us in Christ. But we have to take a look at carefully here at what it says. And we see that there were two things given to us. It says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now we need to pause and ask, what's, what's Paul's intent here? What's he getting at here when he says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Is this just a mere statement of fact? Is he just referring to it as a reality? Or does he intend to convey something deeper? And I think given the overall context of the book, given the overall context of this exhortation, the importance of it at this point in redemptive history, I think what Paul's trying to do here with this brief statement is to bring up in Timothy's mind everything he has taught him about the gospel. This gospel that he's exhorting him to preserve and proclaim and defend and pass on. I believe he intends to convey the whole range of what God accomplishes in saving sinners. Now you might ask, well, okay, well, what would that be? Well, let me give you a few examples here. How about this? We are saved by God from the wrath of God. Did you ever think about it in those terms? We are saved by God 
from the wrath of God. We have a tendency to think of it, well, we're saved by God from hell. That's a true statement. But what is hell? It is the wrath of God of eternal punishment upon unrepentant sin. So God saves us from His judicial punishment for our sin. We are redeemed by the payment of a ransom price. We are redeemed by the payment of the blood of the Son of God. And that ransom fully satisfied divine justice. And because of it then, we are justified. God looks upon us and He declares us righteous. Because He doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the blood of His Son. He sees the righteousness of His Son. And through that then, we are reconciled to God and not only find ourselves at peace with God now, but then he goes even further and adopts us into his family as his child. He has, re, he has regenerated us. Scripture says we are a new creation in Christ. At the most fundamental level, at the core of our being, we have been made different. We are sanctified then and conform into the image of Christ. And finally, in the last day, we will be glorified in the presence of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. These are the things Paul's calling to Timothy's mind when he says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. And we could say that is, that is some great doctrine and theology, is it not? That gives us great hope. But we have a tendency to look upon those things uh, in some ways as being yet future. And some of those things are in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where they will come to their full consummation. But we can ask the question, what about now? What about life right now? In what, let's face it, can be a miserable, broken, fallen world. What does it mean to me regarding my experience of salvation in this life? Well, let's draw some connections between those great doctrinal themes and the practical outworking from them. Because one of the things we have to realize is good theology is always practical theology. And what we see here is, yes, we are rescued from sin's guilt. And what that means is our burden of guilt and shame is removed. We no longer need to feel guilty about our sin. We no longer need to feel shame over our sin. Christ bore it for us completely on the cross. We are brought into this state of righteousness. Yes, we are. We are justified by faith in Christ. And Christ's righteousness has been given to us. And now God looks upon us and He sees His Son's righteousness. He sees all the merit that His Son earned by a life of perfect obedience. What that means is, I can now rest in Christ's work of obedience I am not out there striving, trying to earn God's favor. Christ has done it for me. We are freed from our bondage to sin, to serve the living God. So there's this sense in which, no, I no longer work to seek to earn God's favor. I can't do that. Christ has done it for me. But now, because of that fundamental change in regeneration, I've been freed from that bondage of sin. My, my 
that there's this fundamental change in my disposition. I'm no longer opposed to God. I now desire to obey Him. I now desire to serve Him. And I now desire to commune with God as my heart's chief delight. So we've been rescued from sin's punishment. Well, that means I no longer live in fear of judgment. Christ has bore the judgment. Christ has taken the punishment. I don't have to sit around and wonder and go, man, what about that one sin? It was really, really bad. Is, is there going to be a comeuppance on the last day when I'm standing before the throne? Is the judge going to look at me and say, oh, you know, Tim, there was that one sin. No, he's not, because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all of our sin. There's a song we sing, I can't remember the name of it, but, but there's a line in there where it says that the work of Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. Okay? So I no longer fear the law's loud thunder, for Christ has kept the law for me, so the law no longer condemns me. My relationship to the law's God has, has been changed. It's now Christ's yoke. In Matthew 11, he says, those that believe in him, we take his yoke upon us, and it's light and easy as this rule of life to guide us in our way. We've gone from being alienated from God to living in covenant communion with God. I've gone from being a stranger to God to knowing him intimately by his word and his spirit. I was once under the wrath of God, but now I have the love of God shed abroad in my heart. We've been saved from eternal death to eternal life. And yes, that eternal life will be consummated in the new heavens and new earth, but we have a foretaste of that eternal life now here on earth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of Christ's church. This theology is very practical. It works its way out in our life and walk day in and day out, and it is God's merciful provision for us. But like some of those infomercials that you see, that it sounds too good to be true, and they go, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Because our text goes on to say this God that saves us is also the God that calls us to a holy calling. And the ESV here has a better translation of calling us to a holy calling, not with a holy calling. And what is in view here is not the effectual call of the gospel to salvation, which is the conclusion you could draw if you were to translate as that being called with a holy calling. But what is in view here is what God has called us to in our salvation. What did God call you to when He saved you? You really don't think He didn't have a purpose in mind, do you? Okay? So what is God called us to, and what He's called us to is a life of consecrated service to Him. Over in Philippians, Paul calls this the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's being devoted or set apart to God to serve Him. You see, God in the gospel reveals His holiness to us, and God in the gospel calls us to a holiness of life, a holy work in Christ. And God in the gospel, finally in our glorification, calls us to everlasting sinlessness and virtue. 
Our standing before God is a legal standing. We have a legal standing before God, do we not? We have been declared legally righteous, justified. We have been legally sanctified. We have been declared righteous. He has set us apart to himself. We have been separated from the goats. We have been engrafted into the body of Christ as God's own people. And yet it doesn't end there because God is at work in us, progressively sanctifying us by Christ communicating the benefits of redemption to us through our union with Him, actually making us grow in holiness. Brothers and sisters, here's what we have to understand in our salvation. God is making us into what He has declared us to be in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, the writer says, Now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Did you catch the import of that? It is God who is at work in you to equip you for every good thing to do His will and do all that is pleasing in His sight, and it all comes to us only through being united to Jesus Christ. And this is the compass of what it means that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. And when Paul wrote this to Timothy, in this exhortation to faithfully endure the suffering he would to proclaim the gospel, he was conjuring up all of this because what we could see is what Paul himself was, was proving with his own life and martyrdom was, all of this is worth dying for. So what he is calling to mind here is all the operations of God in decreeing, accomplishing, and applying our salvation, our redemption, and all the benefits that flow to us out of the union with Christ. Now we have to ask, okay, on what basis do we have this? On what basis is this salvation and all its benefits been given to us? You really got to ask, why would God do that? Well, our text goes on to tell us. It says, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. See, if you look carefully at the text, the phrase, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, modifies both the phrase, who has saved us, and the phrase, called us to a holy calling. In other words, it's telling us we are not saved by our works, we are not sanctified by our works, we are not glorified by our works. We are saved, we are sanctified, and we are glorified according to God's own purpose and grace. Our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification is based on God's sovereign, fixed, and definite purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but I find comfort in that. Okay? I'm this changeable creature. Sometimes I can be blown to and fro. God is not like us in that way. So if our salvation, 
if our sanctification, if our glorification, if this whole compass of what it means to be saved and called to a holy calling is of God's sovereign purpose, then it is the result of His sovereign favor. And by definition, if it comes to us by way of God's sovereign favor, or let me use a phrase that I think should resonate with y'all a little more closely, by God's redeeming grace, then it's not of us, is it? It's not the result of my works. But let's not lose sight of one thing. God's purpose in saving you is to conform you into the image of His Son. That's what He tells us in Romans 8, 29. So your holiness is God's eternal priority for you. It was His priority in eternity past in predestinating you to salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 tells us that. And 1 John 3, 2 tells us it is His priority in eternity future. So the burning question is this. Is your holiness your priority for you right now? You see, it is God's priority for you, Christian, to be an accurate image bearer of Him. He says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what we see from these scriptures is the basis is God's sovereign grace, His redeeming grace. But the outcome of it, the outcome of that is a life of holiness. And then the last question we have to ask here is, uh, when was God's sovereign purpose and favor that brings salvation and all of its benefits established? Was it just one of those things that came into God's mind the moment we repented and believed? Or is there a little bigger picture than that? Well, again, our text answers that question for us in the last phrase, last clause of verse 9 when it says, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You see, again, we see this established very clearly in Ephesians 1-4, but in many other places in Scriptures where it says, just as He chose us, Uh, Just as He chose us in Him, meaning in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So there we have that that little in Him, that in Christ. When did all this happen? What happened in Christ before the foundation of the world? This plan of God for the salvation of sinners, you see, it was not only eternal, it was also in the form of a covenant. In John 6, 38 to 40, Christ speaks of promises that were made to him and a commission that was given him by the Father before his first advent. That's the foundation of a covenant. Okay, The commission that was given to Christ was to come and do all the Father's will. That was the commission Christ received. The promise upon completion of that commission was God would give him a people. And we know from what the rest of Scripture tells us that He would come and live that righteous life, that He would come and die that atoning substitutionary death for us. And then God would save a people and give them to Him. 
But we also see in Romans 5, 12 to 21, that Christ was acting as our representative when he did all this work. And this is important to understanding our union with Christ. He was acting as what's called a federal head. He was acting in our place. He was acting on our behalf. He was acting as our representative when he came to do the Father's will. And it was through his work as our representative that he accomplished the Father's will. So the Father and the Son, and by implication the Holy Spirit, covenanted together in eternity past to save sinners. The Father promised to give a people to His Son. The Son voluntarily took upon Himself to be the people's representative, their federal head and surety, to do the work to establish their righteousness by His rendering of full obedience to the law, and then to pay the penalty for our sin through His death on the cross, and on the basis of all this, secure eternal life for us. And then the Spirit agreed to apply all the blessings bought by Christ to the sinner at the right time. This is what's called the covenant of redemption. And it is the eternal basis of our justification by, by faith. And it is the ground on which we receive all the spiritual blessings and the gift of eternal life. It all comes through this union with Christ. Louis Burkhoff said, like the first Adam, he did not represent a conglomeration of disjointed individuals, but a body of men and women who were to derive their life from him, to be united by spiritual ties, and thus to form a spiritual organism. Ideally, this body, and when he says ideally, he means in the mind of God, this body, which is the church, was already formed in the covenant of redemption and formed in union with Christ. And this union made it possible that all the blessings merited by Christ could be passed on to those whom he represented in an organic way. They were conceived of as a glorious body, a new humanity, sharing the life of Jesus Christ. It was in virtue of that union as it was realized in the course of history, that Christ could say, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, Hebrews 2.13. Brothers and sisters, this is our union with Christ. And it is out of this union that all the benefits of our salvation flow to us. Now, I hope you're asking, okay, benefits of salvation, what does he mean by that? What are the benefits of my salvation? I mean, we have, we, there are, let's face it, there are those out there perverting the gospel that they would point to your best life now, health, wealth, prosperity. They would say that. Okay? They would be wrong, but they would say that. So what do we mean by all of the benefits of salvation? Well, here's all the benefits of salvation. Things like regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and ultimately our glorification. See, those are the benefits of our salvation. That is the good that God brings to sinners through the saving work of Jesus Christ. We receive no benefit from God apart from union with Christ. 
And every time the scriptures speak of being in Christ or in him, it speaks of this organic union with Christ that was purposed in the covenant of redemption where Christ volunteered to act as this representative and substitute as the second Adam that was brought into effect in the covenant of grace, the new covenant, and then was applied to the sinner and established by the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. You see, being in Christ is our central identity. We are redeemed sinners united to Christ. Being in Christ is what defines us. We are united to Christ in a living, vital, organic union, and every aspect of our life now flows out of this identification with Christ. This union with Christ establishes who we are. Union with Christ establishes our purpose for existing. Union with Christ establishes the trajectory of our life. And union with Christ establishes how we are to walk in covenant communion with God. And brothers and sisters, our world needs clarity on these issues of identification, does it not? We are an identity culture now. We have identity politics, we have identity everything else. And I want you to sit back and think about how does the world around you identify? Think of all the different ways they do it. And you want to know what the common theme is? It's all sin. They identify by their sin. And so brothers and sisters, the world needs clarity. And here's the thing, only we the church can provide that clarity through the preaching of the gospel. It's the gospel that brings clarity on this. And that brings us to our second point. That this has all been revealed to us by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. The salvation according to the purpose and grace of God that was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity in time, was revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So what was established in this covenant of redemption in eternity past, what was progressively revealed throughout redemptive history by the various covenants, I just want you to think about the text out of Isaiah that was read. What did that reveal about our salvation? Okay, It's been revealed to us, but it was made fully known to us by the visible manifestation of the divine being, the God-man, our Savior, Christ Jesus. That is the full revelation of the gospel and the fullest revelation we have of God himself and the fullest revelation of salvation. And when, when Paul here says about it being revealed by the appearing of our Savior, what he has in mind is the first advent of Christ. And he's looking everything at everything from Christ's conception in the womb to his coronation in heaven after his resurrection and ascension and everything that transpired in, in between. In other words, what he has in view here is the life and work of Jesus Christ. And it's through the life and work of Christ that God has manifested his power to save sinners. 
Christ, by virtue of this representative union established in the covenant of redemption, became incarnate as the representative and substitute for his people to merit all the blessings of salvation for us. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In the purpose and work of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have all the eternal purposes of God in the covenant of redemption coming to fruition in the covenant of grace, that new covenant that has been established in Christ's blood. Now, Paul here summarizes the work of Christ for us in the text as well. He doesn't go into detail. Some of the things we've already talked about of all the things that Christ has done on our behalf. He doesn't list them out, but he does summarize them. And he summarizes the work of Christ by focusing on the end result. Notice what he says in verse 10. But now has, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death, and he revealed immortal life through the gospel. Now, to abolish death is to put a stop to death, to render death inoperative, to deprive it of its strength, to bring an end to it. In other words, Jesus has taken away the power from death. Death no longer has any power over the one who is united to Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, the Greek article before death implies that Christ abolished death, not only in some particular instance, but in its very essence, being, and idea, as well as in all its aspects and consequences. That's pretty thorough and complete. Okay, and the, the, the thing is, this is exactly what Jesus said he would do. He told us he was going to do this. In John eleven twenty six, 26, he said, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And the complete abolition of this death will be at Christ's second coming. But until that time, he has still deprived death of its power. He has taken away its power over those who believe in him, over those who are united to him. But in the end, he will abolish it completely. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. But the, meanwhile, we still experience the death of the body. But it's temporary now. In fact, it's made no account of by Christ and the apostles. When they're dealing with the whole idea of physical death, in what context? How do, they even, how do they even frame the discussion? What does Paul say? To be absent from the body? Oh, that's to be present with the Lord. Nothing scary there, is there? You see, the thing that we've got to remember, though, is death is not our friend. Sometimes Christians can be a little flippant about death, and they can almost act like it's a friend. It's not. It's an enemy. Death is a sorrowful thing. Death is a grievous thing. In fact, didn't I hear uh, Mike announce one of your members just, just had a family member die? 
That brings sorrow and grief and suffering, and that's all very real. But brothers and sisters, it's gospel hope that strengthens us to walk through those things. In fact, what the scriptures say, we don't mourn in the same way as those who have no hope. So death is an enemy. It's an enemy we don't take lightly, but neither do we fear death. It's not something we're afraid of. You see, Satan intended to destroy us through sin and death. When Satan came into the the garden, deceiving Adam and Eve, turning them against God, his intention was the total annihilation of mankind. But yet, what Satan meant for evil, God turned to good. Death is now the entrance into eternal life. Physical death, which Satan intended to be to our destruction, God now uses to consummate His saving purposes and usher us into His eternal presence where there is eternal life, not death, eternal peace, no more toil and trouble, and eternal safety, no more harm. And this is why we can live with no fear of death, because we know the victory is ours over death How? In Christ Jesus. And I have to ask the question that Jesus asked the masses he was preaching to in John 11, 26. Do you believe this? But you see, Christ did more than abolish death. He also revealed immortal life to men through the gospel. Now, have you ever given much thought to what immortal life is or what eternal life is? Sometimes I think we have a tendency to just conceive of it as it's just life that doesn't have an end. Not really. Think about this for a minute. Life like we know it right now in this world without end, that's a curse, not a blessing. Okay? There's got to be more to it than that. And there is. Because it's more than just mere eternal existence. It's all, it is an eternal existence that is the highest possible quality of life there is. Now try to wrap your minds around that, okay? Because you can't even define that with what we know from this life. We talk about quality of life now in this life. It's usually measured by things like prosperity and health and, and whatnot. And those are blessings, okay? But we have to take it out of this world, to understand what this is. And again, this is only going to be fully realized in the new heaven and new earth upon Christ's second advent. But Revelations 21, 1-8 describes this as an existence where God dwells in the midst of His people. That is what makes it the best possible quality of life. God is dwelling in our midst. And this is the heart of God's covenant promises to His people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And where God is, sin will not be present. That's what makes it the highest possible quality of life. We will then have perfect, complete, unhindered communion with God. Anything that can bring suffering and sorrow is no more. It's gone forever. All the consequences we bear in this life of living in a sin-cursed and fallen world, gone 
forever. This is our eternal inheritance. This is our hope of eternal life. It is an existence in which we shall see Christ face to face. Even faith will be no more because all will be sight then. And because we see Jesus, we will be made like Him in His holiness without any remaining corruption. Now again, this is one of those points that I hope you look forward to that. I hope that gives you great hope. But I also hope it causes you to ask, ask a question. Because if you rightly perceive this doctrine of union with Christ, you should be saying, but wait a minute, I'm united to Christ right now. Yeah, I look forward to that day, but what about now? How does this help me now? Well, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that those who have believed the message of the gospel have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge or surety of this inheritance in heaven with a view to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, the Spirit has been given to God's people now. You have the Spirit dwelling in you now if you are united to Christ. And that Spirit is communicating to you in this life all the blessings of salvation merited by Christ's work. Remember that long list we, we went through? Regeneration, repentance, faith, uh, your, your perseverance, your sanctification, all of that. And furthermore, He is at work in you, sanctifying you to ensure that each and every child of God safely reaches heaven. I'm sure you're all familiar with Romans 8.28, right? For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, okay? And we notice it says God doesn't cause good things to happen to us. He causes all things to work together for good. But continue reading in that section where he says what the purpose of that is. It's to see you perfectly conformed to the image of his son. So you understand all these providences God brings into your life, even those ones that are very, very difficult, the grievous providences, all of that God is working through for one purpose, and that's to make sure you safely arrive at heaven's door. So the Spirit of God is at work in us now, through the Word of God, applying all the benefits of our redemption merited by Christ to enable us to persevere in this faith, to keep us from the evil one until the day of Christ Jesus, when He will return and He will, in fact, bring all of this to its full and blessed consummation. And until that day happens, we have to remember, in Christ, God does indeed dwell in the midst of His church now. Brothers and sisters, your justification, your sanctification, your perseverance in the faith, your glorification, those are not things that just came to, mind, to God's mind when you believe. It's not like God's sitting up there in heaven, surrounded by the angels, and looks down from heaven one day and sees that Mike Woods over there believed and goes, oh, wow, look at that, guys. Mike repented and believed. Didn't see that one coming. 
Well, what are we going to do about him now? I didn't have a plan for him. Okay, that's not how this went down. God's purpose and grace that saved you and called you to a holy calling was established in Christ Jesus in eternity past in that covenant of redemption. It is fixed according to God's sovereign purpose. God then revealed this to us in the life and work of Jesus Christ. He made it effective and put it in effect in the new covenant. And brothers and sisters, it's all being applied to you, his children now, by the Holy Spirit in the course of your life. Think about this. God, in all three of his persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasures. Galatians 2. And he has been at it since the foundation of time, and he will continue in it eternally. And what's the promise that comes to us in the Scriptures? He who has begun this good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that comes only by virtue of union with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, we rejoice. We give great thanks over these truths. It causes us to look forward to heaven with great anticipation of what awaits us. But Father, we do so with hope now, even in the midst of the difficulties of this life in the fallen world, our struggles with our own sin, Lord, because we know that in union with Christ, we have your spirit in your word. And Lord, we plead with you, do your transforming work in us by your spirit. We plead with you, Lord, as, as the, the father came seeking the life of his son to our Lord, where he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. Build us up in the faith. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Give us the grace, Lord, to live a life that is pleasing in your sight as we patiently wait the day of Christ's return. Father, indeed, we do ask this in Christ's name. Amen.